Welcome to A Good Technologist, a podcast about how innovators are using technology to make our society a better place in Asia and across the world. This podcast is brought to you by Better.sg, a movement to drive tech for good based in Singapore. We believe that collaborations across disciplines and diverse people can help technology drive better social outcomes. My name is Rovik and I'm your host today. Engineering good empowers disadvantaged communities by improving the quality of life through sustainable engineering solutions and improved engineering capacity at the local community level. There are a number of initiatives that the nonprofit runs and Mayan and Sada both involved in a good bunch of them. Saad is a volunteer at Engineering Good. He initiated Salvage Garden, an assistive tech makerspace, which engages a community of makers, tinkerers, engineers, and enthusiasts towards research and development of assistive tech devices and ideas. The Salvage Garden makerspace also channels efforts towards a greener environment by repurposing or recycling leftover e-waste parts as well as laptops donated to Engineering Goods Computers Against COVID campaign. Mayan volunteers with Engineering Goods Computers Against COVID initiative and also heads the digital literacy program. The Computers Against COVID initiative focuses on collecting, refurbishing and distributing used laptops to underprivileged children who need them for home-based learning. In this interview, we talk about the outcomes both these programs strive for, what digital inclusion looks like in Singapore, and how both Mayan and Saad see the tech for good space. Mayan and Saad, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? Glad to have you guys here. I gave a bit of a lengthy bio for both of you, but in your own words, can you share what you do in your day jobs and what drew you to join Engineering Good? I've just been volunteering for a bit longer than Mayan, and I've been with Engineering Good for a number of years. Looking at the impact that is created from the work, it's just irresistible. It just keeps me coming back for more. So for a day job, trying to balance that with volunteer work, that's always a challenge. My work is now to run a small little company in Singapore that does frugal innovation. So it's not entirely disconnected from what Engineering Good is doing now. My day job involves trying to identify that uh, digital divide and trying to address it through low-cost innovation. My day job does not quite involve uh, as much tech stuff as Saad. I actually work for a technology research consulting company, so I do more writing uh, on economic issues. I work in the space which deals with technology policy with regard to international trade, cross-border data flows, and I work for a company called TRPC, and I'm also the executive director of the Asia Cloud Computing Association. So it's sort of tech, but sideways. I I saw a post that the executive director, Joe Johan, had uh, put on Facebook and he said that, okay, I got, I need some help to refurbish about maybe like 40 or so computers. Can anyone spend a weekend or so just helping refurbish? And I wrote to him, I said, look, I, I can, I can use the screwdriver and, you know, prior apart stuff. And I don't mind helping out a little bit. I come down on a Monday expecting just to spend like maybe three hours just doing, you know, whatever it is that needs to be done. And then suddenly this initiative just carries on and basically hasn't stopped since March. We've refurbished about like 5,000. Yeah, 5,000 lap- 5, laptops. <laughs> I know. I feel like we should do like a Austin Powers Dr. Evil, like 5,000 laptops. <laughs> the initial part of it was really um, trying to get these laptops out to kids for home-based learning. We've since expanded the program to include anyone who needs a laptop for learning. So, for example, working with some of the prisons, uh, ministry, some of the upskilling VWOs, which need these devices 
devices. So we we have expanded the mandate a little bit. But in the initial part, indeed, it was a lot of heartbreaking stories on how kids who needed the laptops just wouldn't couldn't be able to to get a laptop for whatever reason. I mean, some of the stories were as silly as administrative bits and pieces. So one of the one of the emails that we got in, initially was from a, a parent who wanted a laptop for her son, but she couldn't get a laptop through her social worker. And we, because we're not a, a social work organization, we actually need to focus very much on, on the actual laptops and the distribution, etc. So we, we're not allowed to go in and like talk to people. And at that time, you know, during the CB period, we there was a lot of movement control and restrictions. So we're not actually going into people and saying, okay, we need to interview you to really see whether you're truly in need or do you just want to scam a laptop out of us, right? This lady, she wrote in, she says that I need the laptop for my children. I've got three children. They can't get a laptop. We have one, but it's broken. My social worker says that they cannot apply for one for me because my chess card is a whatever, I think it's a blue color card or a green color card, I can't remember. Um, but I just lost my job two weeks ago because of the COVID-19 situation. I think she was a cleaner at one of the food courts. Administrative office was saying, oh, I'm so sorry, but we're all work from home now. We're a little bit behind the curve, so we can't get to you in time. And she's panicking because she's like, I've got three kids, they need home-based learning and they need the laptops right now. What am I going to do? And that really got my goat because I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is just, just give her, just give her a laptop just give the kids a laptop because this is administrative but at the same time you're frustrated because it's not something which you can blame people for right you can't blame people for saying i need to work from home and it's kind of a mess right now because everybody was still figuring out this whole work from home thing interesting situations but that's the kind of things that we're, we're, we're dealing with when it comes to digital inclusion in singapore yeah wow that's very revealing the first time i think i got sensitized to the fact that there are people in singapore who may not have access to some of these basic technologies. Uh, it's not even like a fancy app, right? It's getting access to a laptop or even assistive tech. Why do you think this gap exists where there's actually a whole bunch of people, not just in Singapore, but also in the region who just don't have access to what most of us think is basic tech? You know, there are these policies that MOE has to provide people laptops and access to the tools necessary to do the home-based learning. And there are initiatives. Singapore is better than a lot of countries in providing options. But, you know, there are gaps. And and these are the gaps that uh, tend to get overlooked with the numbers that are reported and the way they're reported. I mean, if you look at broadband penetration, Singapore's been very proud in saying, look, everybody has broadband at home. There's like over 100% of broadband penetration in Singapore. And so that assumption is that that means that everybody's connected. Put a fine point on it is that you can't use the broadband unless you have some kind of computer, right? And I think the fact that we we made it really easy for people to to come to us because we're not government, we're not, we don't have 10,000 forms that you have to fill in. There's no pre-qualification, et cetera. I think that, the, that made it a lot easier for people to ask. It's a little bit better of a sensing mechanism for the ground. Uh, so I think that the, the gap has always existed. It's just that I, I don't know, maybe the Singapore government just has really, really great PR and they just, you know, cover it all with like, we've got great policies and we don't actually want to see the real mess that's underneath. But COVID, I think, blew the lid off all of that and really started to reveal the, the, the policy gap. So how, for example, the policy for ensuring that students definitely had a device in was not accelerating fast enough, how uncomfortable the teachers were at teaching digitally, teaching digital tools, etc. I think that you have you, you've definitely got different camps and we are on the right path. I think that there definitely are more bumps in the road to inclusion than we would like to admit to ourselves. But it's that's where I think 
places like engineering Google try to stand in the gap and say, okay, well, let's try to make it such that you have a device. We're sorry it's secondhand. So for for example, the COVID is COVID. We're sorry that it's not the top of the line, fantastic, fastest gaming laptop that you could possibly have. But uh, here's a laptop that you can use for your home-based learning. And then when you grow up and earn some more money, you can go upgrade it yourself. But it's definitely enough and sufficient for you. The baseline. Exactly, exactly. We've also got social issues to be very honest uh, we we were a bit nervous at some of our laptops possibly turning up on carousel after we gave them away and indeed did we have one situation like that we did have one or two right yeah joe's policy on that was it's okay if it ends up on carousel and you really do need the money that much actually you actually have bigger problems than just digital inclusion issues being a charitable organization and being engineering good we have a lot more flexibility than uh, a large institution like a ministry or whatever we have the flexibility to not over engineer a solution and just go with good enough engineering so the devices that we were able to repurpose were the ones that were donated by singaporeans right so if somebody had a spare laptop we just clean it up and then make it good enough to meet the needs of others who are less fortunate what i'm hearing here is that a big reason maybe for the lack of digital inclusion is that the Singapore narrative has maybe been too optimistic, right? <laughs> and as someone who works in government who understands this a bit, I can totally relate to that because a lot of times you want to project the best part of what we're doing. And and those things are not untruth, right? They're facts, but there are cracks that, that emerge over time that maybe we need to keep paying attention to, right? So as you mentioned, this broadband access thing has a lot of assumptions built into it that people actually have devices that can take advantage of such broadband, et cetera. And I think those are things that we need to constantly remind ourselves that not everyone falls within the average or the median, that people have different needs. And especially for those who come from, I guess, less advantaged backgrounds, how can we help them gain the opportunities that they need, right? And make sure that they're not left behind. So I, I want to use that move towards this whole idea of digital inclusion, because I think this is an important thing for us to talk about in the tech for good space. Salvage Garden has a key focus on assistive tech. Now, for people who don't understand what assistive tech is, could you explain an overall picture of what that is? The idea of using technology to serve a need for a person with disabilities. It doesn't have to be shiny, blinky uh, tech that most people imagine when you say tech. It could be something as simple as, you know, just another wheelchair or a modification to a wheelchair or, um, you know, a little custom built handle. Uh, that allows for a different way of operating something. It could just be like a Velcro strap. All of these are assistive tech, but it also extends to all of the shiny blinky things that we normally take for granted, like Wi-Fi and uh, things like Siri on your phone or, you know, Alexa, the smart speaker. You know, for us, it's it's things like we use the smart speaker to try and get Alexa to say something funny or play music. Uh, and it's all very good and entertaining. But if you think about what Alexa could do in a home where somebody is wheelchair bound, and connected to, say, uh, the light switches, then the person doesn't have to get around in order to switch on and off the lights or turn on and off the aircon. They can just use their voice and say, Alexa, turn off the light. And that works beautifully. And it's not just a, a nice, entertaining thing. It, it, it is part of your day-to-day -day life. It's the assistive nature of the technology that qualifies it as assistive tech. So it doesn't have to be assistive tech by design, like a wheelchair. What we do at Savage Garden is throw open all the boxes and say, look, uh, let's think like makers do, which is completely out of the boxes, and see what we already have available to us 
and rethink them in ways towards making lives of people, persons with disabilities, uh, a little bit easier. So sometimes all that's required is finding the gap and building something or 3D printing something or just modifying something with duct tape and zip ties, cable ties to just, you know, make it that much more accessible. They're, they're not complicated. I mean, Saad and I were kicking around some some ideas and he was showing me the, the 3D printer thing that he was doing. And a lot of times the solutions really are as simple as, let's just put a rubber band there. How does that work? That works. Okay. To give you an example, Saad was running a, an exhibition about a month ago with, with Carables. And one of the solutions of inverted commas assistive tech was the fact that there were people who were deaf and who could not read lips because everybody was wearing face masks right now. So what do you do? You basically cut a hole in the face mask and put a plastic, clear plastic uh, veneer over the, the front of it so that people who were deaf can read your lips. It's as simple as that. And that is a, a whole new way of thinking about this idea of assistive tech. Like what exactly is the tech? And I think that principle is important, right? Because a lot of the things that we manufacture, produce or develop tends to have some sort of an average user in mind. And that average user also is full of, you know, biases and assumptions and all this kind of stuff. But rarely do we think of expanding that, that, that set of users that we want to design for, for people who may need special assistance with certain things, or maybe even a, a broad set of identities. And I think what I'm hearing is that digital inclusion and assistive tech, the, the fundamental principle here is, you know, can we, make sure that when we build, we build for all. We address uh, different needs that, that exist in society. It's a very systemic ignoring of part of society that exists. People only want to talk or think or make policies for people who are like themselves. You are able-bodied and then you live life that way. You know, you go through, you go through life with primary school, secondary school, then maybe you go to JC or you go to poly and then you go to university. You have a certain pattern of people and then you don't think about people outside of that sphere. And that's a danger because that is a, a blinker that you don't realize that you have on. I think that that's one thing that in the first since policymakers need to realize that indeed it is a bit of an echo chamber. If you have a mobile phone or if you have a laptop, then you are automatically digitally included. I feel that that's another one of the risks that I see right now. In many cases, we see a lot of students and, and uh, young children who are very proficient on the mobile phone. And then the, the parents, they come to us and they say, that I think I may need a laptop, but I'm not sure because they have a laptop. Uh, they already have a mobile phone. I think that they can do the lessons on the mobile phone. And some teachers actually say, it's okay. We don't need to. Some schools have actually come to us and say, it's okay. We don't need to get laptops to all of our students because a lot of them have their own mobile phones. Well, you try writing a fully cited essay in APA format on your phone. Oh, I would hate it. That's really not sufficient. So this idea of digital inclusion, the, the, the fear is that the concept of digital inclusion is not fully fleshed out just yet because who exactly is being excluded from this? And this is something which we I, I see as a major danger for, for us policymakers when we think about digital inclusion. And even to the, let's say, people who may not have such a compassionate heart, right? Assuming that they exist. I think the more salient argument here could be that, you know, if you don't include people in the digital economy, you don't include people in somebody's digital movements, then it's economically suboptimal, right? These are people that you would want to be contributors. You would want them to 
to contribute ideas, to contribute their time, to contribute their efforts towards whatever businesses and productive activities are out there. Uh, that's a very capitalist view. <laughs> but, you know, if that helps you rationalize it, you know, I think I think that works, too. And even if uh, you look at it from, you know, a highly capitalist point of view, there is the base of the pyramid, right? That's what um, gets everybody's eyes lit up and at the same time as gets everybody to be like very cautious all at the same time. We have an opportunity, unlike like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And the potential of involving people in meaningful ways through digital services and through digital means of communication and interaction and banking and finance and all of those things. We're in sort of in transit and we're probably going to remain perpetually in transition, but we're headed towards a place where digital means more affordable. And so if we are able to bridge those gaps, then yes, we're able to bring more people in. Man, you talked a bit about policymaking. I think we also want to think a bit about practitioners in our community, right? So especially in the better.sg community, we have a lot of people who are building tech for good apps, products, etc. Based on the stuff that you've done, whether it's Computers Against COVID, Salvage Garden, or even your digital literacy program, what are some of the principles that you would recommend our community to start adopting and bringing into their development practices or even the ideation practices so that they can actually be more inclusive. Right to Engineering Good, and we have got really good partners that we, we work with who are in various spaces with regard to uh, digital inclusion. So we've got people who are, you know, the cerebral palsy uh, for, we've got the, the Dyslexia Association of Singapore. We, I mean, we work with a whole bunch of partners who have varying uh, levels of, I guess, opportunities to be included uh, that can be that can be operationalized properly, and so we're happy to to be a connecting mechanism for you to be 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 parsing some of these through. I do know that a lot of the discussions with regard to app development, etc., don't necessarily need to be always thinking about digital inclusion because a lot of times, I mean, sometimes you just need to get the app to work in the first place before you actually start thinking about digital inclusion. And in many cases, uh, you don't actually start thinking about the digital inclusion uh, aspect of things until you. You, you get to the, the end stage, but that's not your fault. So let me give you an example, right? Uh, we were just, I was just talking to some of my friends about speech to text recognition, speech to text uh, AI mechanisms. And this was a discussion that I was having last night. All HDB flats usually will have a lift. The lift will have buttons to press to go up and down, but that even, even that on that level, that's not voice activated. So if you at that level, you're not even including people, you know, it's a little bit hard to say, okay, well, for app developers out there, how do you actually, what are some, what are some principles that, that you can have to make sure that you're digitally inclusive? I would say, think digital inclusive in the first instance and try your best to do it. But I don't know, I take a quite fairly practical approach towards this and say, I think you can talk to us, can talk to people like us and engineering good and see whether you can connect and see whether you can kick around some ideas. The iterative approach, that's what works best. I mean, it, it if you are following like an idea where the traditional approach is like, you know, you try and uh, do as much research as possible and then you come up with like the best possible solution and it will address everybody's needs, then the price tag that goes on it is incredibly unaffordable and therefore inaccessible, which is really, really weird. We've seen this so many times with people who try to, you know, address a particular need from one of our beneficiaries and try to go overboard with trying to analyze the situation. I mean, the traditional engineering approach is to over-engineer, you know, uh, oh, look, there's a twiddly bit. Let's add uh, something over here. It's a, we can throw Bluetooth into it. Why not? It will make it more uh, accessible. But then the Bluetooth consumes more 
more power. And if it consumes more power, it needs a bit of bigger battery. And if it needs a bigger battery, you need to charge the damn thing. So over-engineering is not necessarily the right approach. If you do the iterative cycle, put the user in the center, you have a user-centric approach, then your, your, your solution is a lot more meaningful. Those are really good perspectives. I appreciate actually the invitation to partner with Engineering Good. I think that's a great way for us to continue collaborating. And one thing we've learned in previous podcasts is that unlike maybe traditional tech, uh, tech for good is all about collaboration rather than competition. So it's a lot of opportunities here for us to do some cool stuff together. Uh, before we wrap up, you know, we always like to ask our guests some fun questions. I like to think of them as fun. <laughs> First question is, what are your favorite engineering good products or artifacts that you've actually built? We have this WhatsApp group that's full of tech geeks. And it's ridiculously fun to have this community of, of mostly guys whom I can just ping. I can take a picture of a motherboard at 3 a.m. in the morning and can be reasonably reassured that within 10 minutes, I'll get an answer back from this these bunch of people. Like, hey, it's been really, really fun to be part of the community. Is the kitty cam your favorite? <laughs> we had a, a four-legged furry volunteer who strayed into our temporary location. We, we were operating out of a donated space at the Jalan Basar Stadium during the circuit breaker period when everybody was, uh, you know, staying at home. Uh, we uh, had set up operations um, at the Jalan Basar Stadium, and there was this uh, uh, stray cat who wandered in looking for food. Uh, and found the engineering good volunteer Hotel California <laughs> has been with us ever since. And so, yeah, so we now have a camera in uh, the office to keep an eye on the cat. So it's a kitty cam, I think. Obviously, you know, it's for one of the donated things that wound up in our uh, bin was a, was, a, was a webcam that was like really old. But uh, just needed a couple of, needed, needed a little bit of tender loving care. But then the, the, the camera is just, you know, it's working. That is one of the favorite things. And that is sort of the thing that keeps uh, volunteers engaged. Because we unofficially call the cat the managing director. It goes to show that the best kind of tech is not really the one with the most features, right? It's the one that gives you the most joy. And it sounds like that's what happened here. The amount of stuff and the amount of junk that people donated to us was incredible. I mean, that was an irritant, but it, it was also, it was also, I think, the starting point of where Salvage Garden uh, came from because the side suddenly now had like mounds and mounds and mounds of uh, copper wire and sensors and cameras. And it was, it's been, it's been interesting seeing how, how he's been pulling them apart and putting things together. Uh, this is a question we ask all our guests. In one word, what is the future of tech? I would describe it as messy. Caffeinated. Mayan and Saad, thanks again for coming on the show. You know, I, I personally really enjoyed learning about the initiatives and programs you guys have been working on. And especially, I think after today's episode, I've gotten a deeper understanding of why digital inclusion is important and why we should endeavor to apply some of these principles in all aspects of tech development that we're doing. So thank you for sharing your perspectives and, you know, best of luck with all these initiatives. Hopefully there's more room for collaboration in the future. Thank you very much for having us, Rovik. Thanks for having us, Rovik. And, you know, do stop by Savage Garden now that things are opening up a little bit. Um, we do have a physical space and it's really nice to come and hold these assistive tech devices and get a feel for what they are and why they're important. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Good Technologist. If you like what we are doing, you can always find out more on our website, better.sg, and subscribe to the podcast via your typical channels such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. This podcast was produced and edited by myself, Rovek Robert, and our email address is goodtech at better.sg.